welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. fan welcome back to value at value this is part two of a conversation we had with uh jen newton and mira cole williams uh from teaching as intellectual on the intersection of higher ed and inclusion k-12 among many other things so if you haven't listened to the first part you can go back and listen to it uh, it's the previous episode, but we wanted to share the second half with you. We are striving now to do a Sunday and a Wednesday podcast every week, um, having conversations with people that last about an hour and chopping it into two parts so you can digest it in small chunks because we know this podcast was hard for us to digest all the information. So um, this episode, we're talking a little bit more about the intersection of higher education and SPED. We talk a little bit about why teachers have uh, and teaching is political, no matter what people say, um, how to better support all students, not just in inclusion, and, you know, a few other random things. So we, uh, we were thrilled to have them on. You can expect them to be on again soon. But uh, if you don't follow them, follow them online everywhere. Teaching is intellectual. If you don't follow us, follow us at at, at ValueAdsValue on Instagram. You can also find it's Kyle Krieger and its.will.law.iii. You can find us those places. So uh, we hope you enjoy the second part of our conversation with Jenna Mira. I, I, I have a question with this based on this too, because you're talking about disruptive teachers when it comes to anti, anti-bias, anti-racism, anti-ableism, all of those things. But being that you're both in primarily rural areas i'm assuming you get a lot of students who are like me who grew up in a place where there is zero diversity so i think it's a really valuable lesson because i i was just trial by fire when i got to houston i just learned on the fly how to interact with people of different cultures and how to understand those cultures and it took me years to get comfortable with the culture there and understanding what my students needed. So whether they're rural kids or they're just kids who have not been exposed to much in terms of diversity or any of those, how, how do you kind of break through that shell? Cause I find, and I still find that there are people in my life around my hometown that still don't have a, that still don't understand the way people of color actually are and and students in the special education space because they've never experienced anyone like that. So how do you break through that barrier? Well, I'll start off by saying that's why inclusion is important because disabilities are, people with disabilities are in every space. And the fact that people, almost every day on Instagram, I wanna say, y'all don't know anyone with a disability and it shows because we are, we have segregated folks in a way that is harmful and does harm to typically developing people because you know you're steeped in ableism as a part of just growing up in that separate space. So I think that's one of the reasons why we should really be fighting for inclusion on a much more intentional and um, broad level. And 
because it does benefit literally everyone. Um, kids with disabilities do not benefit from being segregated. So there's, I think that's part of it. I think that's a really good point. Um, the other thing that I would say, I'm gonna take Mira's words, um, is that teaching is political. And our students aren't generally, I will say generally speaking, that's not something they wanna talk about. Um, and they haven't really been told that before, right? So when almost, I mean, everything about every course I teach, it doesn't matter what the content is, we're going to talk about politics and we're going to talk about race. And it's, it affects every piece of what we do as teachers and educators. So almost every semester a student will say, I get that teaching is political, but do we have to talk about it all the time? on my course evaluations? And my answer to that is yes. So I think going back to your original point, Kyle, or your question, I would say that um, we have to be comfortable making our students uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And for, Mira has tenure now, I go up next year, but when you're an untenured professor and you're making your students uncomfortable, it can be risky. Um, and so that willingness to accept the consequences of being true and, um, and doing the hard work, I think, is, is a critical point of that. What would you add, Mir? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I also think um, just creating those brave spaces within our classrooms, right? Um, so I feel really fortunate because I get so. I start out with my students, typically it's their junior year. It's going to change a little bit now with our four-year program, but I get to teach them in their like intro class, right? So I'm getting them at their, their juniors in college, but they have not really had any education courses. Maybe some of them have had some experience teaching like summer camps or maybe babysitting, things like that. I haven't really So it's very introductory level. And we just, I mean, we work hard in that class to say, look, this is the program that you're signed up for. Look around you, look at these, these faces, these are your peers. Um, and we are going to push you, right? But we're gonna create these brave spaces where I don't want anybody to be afraid of saying something, right? But at the same time, I'm probably gonna say things <laughs> that you might not agree with or that you have been told differently in your life, right? Because I mean, I'll be honest, we have primarily, it is our, we have white females in our college of education programs. Um, and that can be really problematic um, when you all get in a room together. And like you said, Kyle, like you haven't had some certain experiences or exposure to things. Um, so just really working to intentionally create those brave spaces where we can get, like Jen said, uncomfortable and we're going to get uncomfortable. And then it's great for me to see how they, they grow from course to course. Cause then I get to have them again, um, junior spring, right? And then I get to have them one time during their senior year. And then I get to see them again in their fifth year when they're in their master's program. And then that particular class, we're like diving e even deeper um, and usually doing some type of um, 
book talk that relates to concepts and things we've talked about. So I think just not letting them stop those conversations, right? And then I think the biggest piece for them is, well, what do we do next, right? Like, how do we get these, once they get comfortable, once they start the conversations, once they start to say, okay, I need to, I need to look at myself a little bit, or, oh, I came into education because I wanted to quote, save people, but now I see why there's problems within that, right? Um, and then how do we continue that on? So like the phone call we had with our um, graduates the other day and just to see that they are continuing that on and that they are still coming back and asking us questions and trying to figure out. Um, and we're learning with them though too, right? Like I think that's the key piece that we always stress is like we are continuously learning also and modeling that and talking about the work that we're doing for ourselves um, to be I was going to say that too, that we really position ourselves not as the expert, mm -hmm. like we are the, we're in, we're colleagues with them now. Um, and so we're engaged in, in problem solving together. I was going to add too, when Mira was talking, it reminded me, I texted the, a group of, of former students who are now inclusive educators who have been in the field for about five years the other day. And I said, I'm thinking about starting a series that's called everything you know about special ed is wrong. <laughs> what do you guys think I should add to it? And there were six teachers on the group text and my phone just went and I was like, wait, I can't keep up. And they had an amazing amount of ideas for what they wish general ed teachers knew um, or, or thought or did in order to better support inclusive practices. And I think that is another piece of it is that um, we often are asked, like for instance, last summer, Mira and I went to a former student's school in Virginia to do a little PD for them on the day before their first day of school. And it was re related to or around um, sort of getting rid of the clip charts in their elementary school. They had lots of teachers who were using clip charts and our graduate was teaching there and she was not using a clip chart and she was, it was very disruptive to the specials teachers, to some of the team members who wanted her to use it. And she, um, was just like, I'm not going to do it. And her principal was like, maybe you could talk to the teachers about how you think about classroom management and guiding behaviors and how you do things without doing a clip chart. So she reached out to me and Mira and said, I would like you guys to come because I think if you tell them, it'll, it'll be maybe better. And we like to hang out and we like to talk to teachers. So we went, but I would add that honoring the expertise in your building is critical. Mm -hmm. There are times where I used to never do one-off PD like that. And now I realize that sometimes hearing it from someone else helps to bolster the messaging from within. But we don't need outside experts for everything. And you have experts in your building and just because they're doing something different or non-traditional, um, I, would, I would say we need to give more space to that and allow teacher leadership um, 
within communities because and early career teachers can also be leaders. Yeah. Mm. You know, you said something, it reminded me, I'm, I'm an ordained minister and in seminary, uh, they, they've stressed to us to remember that sometimes when you're, when you're speaking to your congregants, that it's better, they'll receive a message better from an outside source than from yourself. And that's why so many pastors use illustrations. And that's why so many pastors, because you can't, you know, it's like, it's hard to get one way or the other. And so when you said that honor the expertise in your building, I'm, I'm like I say, I'm a 14 year veteran and I go into this, my school building every year and I'm asking the teachers, what did y'all learn new? Let's talk about what you did this summer. What, did, what are you doing in your classroom? How are you doing it? I've totally revamped my classroom because of the impact from those experts in my building who were doing stuff that I'm just looking like, you got your own webpage? Your students don't go to ours, they go to your webpage and get the information and you, and it just like those little things like that. I was an old school, you, all you need is a pencil and a piece of paper, give me a whiteboard or a chalkboard, I can teach you anything. Then I started seeing other teachers, you know, big shout out to our, there's a university here, Texas Southern University, their teacher preparedness program I've witnessed three of their graduates do phenomenal work. And, and their primarily focus is on the anti-bias, on the social justice piece. Teachers come in building relationships, understanding relationships, fostering those relationships, leveraging those relationships. And at the end of the day, those students succeed. And so I'll go sit in the classroom and just be a fly on the wall. Pay me no mind. I'm, I'm on my break, but I'm going to sit here and watch you teach and, and take notes you know, from a first year teacher, from a second year teacher, because there's always something that you can learn and glean from somebody else. Um, and I think that a lot of times we want that star power who I need somebody with a name to come and tell me what to do. No, no, you can watch the ants and learn how to work together. Mm -hmm. You know, you can watch, you know, you can do, watch anything and learn something from it. And I think if you get away from that, you have to have that star power as a, as a, as a collective, we would be so much better because teachers are so diverse. The things that we do are so great and it needs to be shared. And that's part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is to celebrate the things that's going on with teachers, you know, within the community, with the stakeholders to give teachers that inspiration that, hey, be yourself, be authentic to who you are. And let's just go out here and change the world one student at a time. You know, I know it's kind of, Everybody say I'm kind of, you know, always kind of altruistic with my beliefs and, you know, but I'm always that glass is always half full. We can always get there and it's always something left in the tank to keep going. So I salute you guys for that. I mean, this is, ah, this has been enriching to me for my soul. So thank y'all. <laughs> um, I, I, I do have a, a, I'm trying to decide which which follow-up question I want to ask because there's one in terms of inclusion and then there's one in terms of like teacher prep so I think since we're talking a little bit more about teacher prep right now so my experience in college I was totally unprepared to build relationships with students when I got like I never ever was taught how to and like I I'm a personable person so I can build relationships but I was never given like a playbook for how to build relationships with students. So I guess my question is, how do you build that into your programs? And is that something that's like widely being 
done across teacher prep? Because it seems like to us, like Wilkie said, there are certain universities and we've met people from certain universities that it's explicit and those teachers are great. And then there are certain people who come from universities like mine that are like a fish out of water. Yeah. So um, I'll start. So I, I'm actually just finishing up a summer course that I've been teaching that it's, it's called Classroom um, and Behavior Management, but it is centered on how do we build relationships because you're never going to get to the classroom management piece if you don't start with building relationships, right? So um, it's really intentional in that sense, but you're exactly right because it's not a requirement, right? So when we talk about those standards and things in higher education, there's, yes, there's standards, but there's different ways to interpret them as well, right? So there's nothing that says you have to even have, at least in the state of Virginia, a classroom management course. So you can get your degree, right? You can graduate. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a specific classroom management course. Um, and in our program, the ICE program, they have two different courses, right? That are very, very intentional, very explicit. Um, in terms of how do we build relationships? How do we keep relationships? How do we engage students within those relationships? How do we build communities? Um, but you're exactly right. It, it's not something that you're going to find with every single teacher. Um, and I also think that it's one of those things for some teachers that they can easily build relationships with students that are like them or that have similar experiences to them, right? Um, so I know that one of the things that we work really hard at doing is making sure that students understand and know how to build relationships with students that are not like them, right? Um, or with students who have less like unpreferred ways of asking for attention or, or asking for um, whatever their needs are. So one of the things too that's inherent in an inclusive program is to help students, our teacher candidates, to view the children in their classrooms as being um, you know, worthy of being heard and entitled to their full range of emotions and to feel their feelings, we have that goes back to unpacking ableism and the expectations. I mean, we also have two behavior classes. Um, the first one being like that universal community building course, and then because of special ed degree, we also do tier two and tier three with behavior intervention programs and functional behavior analysis. But because those are required for our accreditation, but one of the pieces that is really hard for students is that they come through our K-12 system with those sort of very black and white, good kid, bad kid framing. And so in their mind, they're like, if you talk out, I'll send you out of the room. If you talk out, I'll move you to the back of the room. If you, you know, and so unpacking and helping them understand functions of behavior and all the way down to sensory, right? That sometimes people um, need to sort of touch things 
So what can we do to meet that need rather than removing the child? Or so, and we're primarily in early childhood. My program here at Ohio is a K-12, but my expertise is up to about third grade. So we can do a lot of that tactile stuff. I think it applies across the age range, but um, really helping people, helping our students think about what kids need and what they're communicating and how to help them meet that need rather than right, like the punitive model that they kind of are used to. This expectation that this is what school looks like and you need to comply. Um, we spend a lot of time tearing that down for them or unpacking that for them and helping them think about that differently and helping them think about behavior differently. And that is not universal. Um, so we have a lot of work to do as a field. And I think going back to what you were saying, Wilkie, about opening up the doors and letting each other see what we're doing, that's something also in higher ed that we don't do. And it's, I always ask, um, I'm, Amir and I both are different kind of instructors, I think in the way that we execute our pedagogy. So it's hard to often find peers that I feel like can come into my class and kind of recognize what I'm doing and give me good feedback. And so in each of the places I've been, there's kind of been that one person that I'm like, all right, come in every semester, invite them into one class to sit in with and kind of give me some feedback and help me think about my teaching differently. Um, and I give, I love to go watch other people teach, um, but, there's not a culture of really pedagogical conversation in higher ed, which is something that is interesting to me. And people, I, so I'm an ungrader, and um, oftentimes people will be like, like colleagues of mine will be like, I know that you're all about letting everybody do what they want to do and never having to show any work. And I'm like, well, that's not what it is, actually. Um, <laughs> but we're not, we're not enculturated to talk about pedagogy and so which is weird right so, right I mean I'm sitting here my mind is blowing I just put a question mark on my pad like <laughs> <laughs> if anyone should be having discourse about education you would think it would be happening at the higher ed and that's yeah I mean we could do a whole podcast on busting myths of higher ed <laughs> like that higher ed values innovation it's or traditional. it's tradition it's traditional yeah mm -hmm. So being disruptive in higher ed and then also promoting teachers to be disruptive in K-12 can be controversial. And there, it's funny, Mira, Mira is my go-to person because, I mean, at least once a week, I'm like, how is this thing I just said controversial? Why is someone mad about this? This is so basic. Um, I never realized that I'm being controversial until someone's offended, but that um, that idea of talking about pedagogy is not inherent in what we do. And a lot of what we teach isn't necessarily reflected in the practices mm -hmm. of our colleagues um, or ourselves. I mean, we're learning too. Like you were saying about learning and evolving. I pulled a syllabus up from two years ago and I was like, this is trash. I would never teach a course this way now, right? So it's that constant process. I'm not a person who can pull out last year's syllabus, change the dates, and upload it. Um, we have to keep improving, and we have to keep responding to the moment. I think I think I have to do things differently now. Uh, I think my teachers need me to be different, and that requires me to think and be reflective of what I need them to get out of it, right? 
You know, it's interesting. I told you I came from an inclusion background to the Gen Ed classroom. And I've had great co-teachers, let me just say that, like amazing co-teachers that taught me that you're not an inclusion teacher, you're a teacher. These students, all these students are lucky enough to have two of us in this room. So those are not your kids, these are not my kids, all of these are our kids. And we've had that, that spilt over into me being a Gen Ed teacher. And when I became the GT, a GT teacher and I started teaching GT and Accelerated, and people saw me doing some of the same projects with my GT Accelerated kids that I did with my special ed kids. And they said, well, why are you doing the same thing? You should be doing them different, doing things differently. I said, why? I say, because a challenge is a challenge no matter how it is. Now, how you differentiate that challenge, the, the end result is gonna be the same, but how you get them to that end result, that's the difference that makes a difference. That's what, you know, that's what you do as a teacher to get them there. In this last two years, I've had GT, I've had honors, I've had accelerated, I've had special ed, and I've had, I would call low regular kids. And everybody was like, how do you prepare for that? And I said, my simple magic is I learn every kid. It's not hard. You watch them work. Watch how they respond to different things that you do. And I think that in education, we because we label so much, we label every kid for what they are and what they can or supposedly can't do. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen amazing results with kids who they said, oh, they can't do anything. Oh, he's autistic. He's not going to be able to do that. Well, why? Who said that? Who, who, where, where's that in his FIE? Show me that where they said he could not do it. It said it's a struggle, it's a challenge, but any kid can do anything if you put the right person in front of them. And I think- So what I hear you saying though, is that we create problematic framings for kids that are perpetuated by the system that we have in place. So 100%. my, I mean, my dream when I'm in charge of the world, um, there will be no special education because special education is supports and services. It's not a place, it's not a room, it's not a teacher, it is supports and services. And every kid gets a certain level of supports, right? So that's not special. Mm. The way that we support kids in their learning and understanding that, that diversity is a natural part of the human condition is not special. We all have accommodations in our lives, right? I have glasses so I can see. We all have accommodations. So we make these false buckets, right? Where we're like, well, your accommodations are such that you're special and that's this track. And what we know from people who have gone through the K-12 special ed system and are now adults is that they were deeply underserved. And did not get the things that they needed. Special education isn't effective in terms of outcomes, right? It's only effective in terms of segregation. So mm -hmm. if we think about the ways that we box people in, like gifted and talented is another very easy thing. Our curriculum is so narrow and our definition of people is so narrow that if you're anywhere like not right in the middle, then we have a name for you. Whereas kids who are 
typically developing on grade level, made up grade levels, right in the middle, still need acceleration in some areas, right? And sometimes need support in others. And you provide those things without having to say they're this or that. So it's an interesting thing that we've created, right? Um, where we kind of have these ways of sorting and separating kids and we spend a lot of time slotting them. And once we slot them, we still don't have a homogenous group. We still don't have, homo that's what you're saying, right? Is like, we still don't have a homogenous group. We're just differentiating within this fake group that we made up and we could not, we could do it differently. We could say like, this is my class. These are the services and supports that individual kids need in my class. And we could build that in, in a different way, but we're really attached to labeling and education. We're really attached to, um, the, the idea of a certain, and you guys were talking about this in a previous podcast in achieving certain standards, skill sets, creating a space that is sort of a, a linear line of learning and, le and learning is not linear. Anything but linear. Yep. Sometimes it could be circular, you know. It's, <laughs> but our way of sorting and slotting doesn't allow for circular. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. so I do, I do think a lot about that. And I think a lot about the ways that our terms, um, if teachers aren't actively working on being anti-racist and anti-ableist, those terms will absolutely impact bias. Um, and those biases will absolutely impact the child's experience in their learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think we've answered. We only asked one question from. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of got the feeling that that would be the way it is. And as much as I want to ask, like, I want that inclusion question though, Kyle. Which one? <laughs> you said you had an inclusion question. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. So a term I hear a lot is learned helplessness, and I just. I hear people saying it and having it like has 19 different meanings from people saying, well, I want this kid to be on his own so they don't learn helplessness or, and it's just a term I hear a lot when it comes to inclusion. So if you could kind of unpack that term and, and kind of, cause I think teachers mean well that they don't want kids who are getting these special education services to be so reliant on them that they can't do anything without them. But I feel like it gets a little wonky when it comes to that term. You want to take it? You want me to? Hmm. You start. So I, I think learned helplessness is actually mostly embedded in saviorism. So the idea that, um, and this happens, this is a natural kind of thing that happens, especially most districts now are leaning away from having one-on-ones for kids with disabilities or more significant disabilities because it sort of limits the, the relationship becomes a little bit um, more of a caretaker than a teacher and a learner kind of relationship. So the learned helplessness is rooted, I think, in the idea that I have to do something for this child or else this child will not have or do or be. Um, special education 
it, it it's at its core, not the way it's implemented, but the way that it's intended is to provide kids with the services and supports they need to access the general ed curriculum, to have a quality of opportunity, to live independently, and to have economic self-sufficiency. Those are the kind of components that are written into the law. So if we think about those things, if we're providing those skills to students to help them gain those skills, then there's not really a, a concern about learned helplessness. Learned helplessness comes from the adult who is over, over supporting or over um, extending, which is rooted in the idea that they think that child can't learn or can't be independent or can't, um, or needs them. Like you need me in order to be okay, right? So we've all heard this from teachers, like I can't take a sick day because my babies need me. Um, and that is sort of where learned helplessness comes from. The other side of that too, I would say, is that it's not withholding supports from kids, withholding services and supports from kids with the framing of, I don't want them to be too in, too dependent is unacceptable. Um, we are, that's our role is to provide services and supports. So that framing of like, I don't want them to be too dependent on me. If it's a support that they need, you need to give it to them. Like withholding support doesn't, if, if you hold a toddler up by their fingers and you let go, that doesn't make them walk. It makes them fall on their butts. So if you, you know, provide the supports and let them take the steps, but just withdrawing them without stability is not teaching anyone anything. Mm -hmm. So those are sort of my two for primary. What would you add, Mir? Yeah, no, I think I was going to say it all goes back to expectations, right? So I think that's another thing that we have to really think about in terms of um, when we're preparing teachers, right? Is making sure that they are going to have expectations for all of their students. Um, I know, like Jen said, like we have walked into classrooms to do observations where teachers are, oh, well, they can't do that today. They're, they are my little, my babies, right? Especially when we're talking about early childhood. Um, and it can get really tricky. I think also, especially for brand new teachers to try to find that balance of like, what is a reasonable expectation um, versus what is a expectations that's way too high versus no, they can do more, right? They can, they can do more. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's definitely this, this fine balance and it can get really, really tricky for for new teachers but um well in special education has been long rooted in low expectations yeah i mean i think it's really important to to know that the law is written for minimal progress right so schools are only responsible for providing the supports that will result in minimal progress yeah. and that um that has long been you know established some low outcomes for kids and if we if we set this start the bar for all of our students to make minimal progress I mean imagine what we would be saying right that's I don't I'm not subscribing to the college and career ready model of education but I'm definitely here to say that we should have that same expectation for kids with disabilities um, because we don't and 
we are then sort of sentencing them to a life of um, learning those skills after school because they didn't get them when they were in school. So, and that's not to say, I think there are a lot of special educators who are just so deeply committed to their work and to their students, but this, I'm talking broadly about the system and the way that it's set up, the way the IEP goals are written, the way services and supports are allotted, they are all focused on minimum supports. Well, I think that that's one thing I was gonna say, right? Like we talk about IEPs, we don't have to just change an IEP once a year, right? Like if they meet the goal, then make a new goal, right? Like don't just stop. But Jen's exactly right. The way that our systems are built. And then also a lot of times what happens is our special education teachers are so overloaded with their caseload, right? That they can't get to it. And then teachers are feeling like, well, I can't do that because it's not their goal. Yes, you can, right? Mm -hmm. You can still do something that's not necessarily their goal. Um, well, and, okay, one more thing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, goals are about access to the general curriculum. IEPs are not a curriculum. It's not like I only teach these goals. We're only working toward these goals. It's the goals within the general curriculum, right? So that, I think, is a huge misconception, and it, it ends up not working in practice mm -hmm. where kids are really accessing the general curriculum. So the, the idea of data binders, which I support data collection, but like pick a day, right? And collect that data intermittently, but we're not just sitting down and doing discrete trial on goals for data collection. Access to the general curriculum for 92% of kids in special ed is the way that it should be happening. And it has to happen in inclusive spaces because that's where the general curriculum is. I well, well I, I, I physically don't think I can download any more information. <laughs> as much as I have like 37 more questions, so we're definitely gonna. I do want, I do, we have to get to the last question. Oh, um, yep, take it. We have to get to the last question because this is, like a cornerstone that we ask every um, teacher. Um, and so I'm gonna ask you two, and I want you both to answer it. The first one is if you could share a message, if you could put up a billboard, think of a billboard that people will see, every educator passing through this their journey would see and read it. What would that message be to a teacher? We'll start with you, Mir. So, Jen already kind of talked about this, but teaching is political and it has to be that way, right? I think that that, like if that could be my billboard to get students and teachers to understand that it is political, you can't get around that. Um, in order to truly meet the needs of every single student that you're going to work with, you have to recognize that it is political and that you have to continue the fight and do the work, right? And be disruptive. I would say that my billboard would say teaching is intellectual work. Um, I, I think the deprofessionalizing of teachers and the um, willingness, I think, to accept 
very low expectations for a lot of teachers so that if we just have a body in the room, if, you know, we just keep the kids safe, if that to me, we should never accept that. Teaching is intellectual work and educators are intellectual professionals. And that messaging will be on my tombstone. Love it, love it, love it. I would love to invite y'all back over to have another conversation uh, about the whole teaching is political and how we're not, our federal government does not really have control over the individual states. So that's a conversation I think that we could really dig down because I think it takes that discourse amongst educators uh, from K-12 and higher ed in order to really push an initiative that that will really get people's eyes open to what, why we have such a severe educational deficiency here in the United States. And oh, yeah. so that will, we'll, that's, that's, a, that's an invitation. Kyle, put that in a book. So we got it. I got it. I got it. I've got it written um, <laughs> right in my trusty notebook right here. All right. So the last question once all of the classrooms are done, there's no more bells, there's no more uh, packing up the backpacks and your briefcases to go to classes, no more lectures. What is it that you all would want your legacy to be? So for me, it would be that there is no such thing as the last bell rings. Um, so I think my legacy, I want it to be this idea that there's this continuous process of learning and communication and connection. Um, so there's really no closed door, right? There is no last bell. Um, because if we stop, we're not going to actually do the work that we need to do. And we're not going to impact the students that we need to impact. I would um, agree with that. Well, first I have to say that the idea that I would have a legacy is funny to me because I, I expect that I would just sort of like disappear into the ether. Yeah, uh, right. And people will be like, do you remember that short lady that, um, I think I would extend what Mira said to also say that I think our, I'm going to speak for both of us here. I think our legacy um, would be in disruptive inclusive educators. So I, I want, I really want to prepare students and then support them in their work and they in our work to be disruptive. I, I want it to be a different place, a different system when, um, when I'm passing it on to the next you know, the next person, I want it to be different. And I want, I want to have poked holes in it at the very least. Like maybe I can't, maybe I can't tear it down. Maybe I can't blow it up. Maybe I can't, um, you know, completely combust it, but I want to at least poke some big old holes in it. I that the Achilles. So I can't write anymore. Yeah. That, <laughs> I want to like target some, the kidneys, the Achilles, like get it in some places mm -hmm. that will do damage. <laughs> All right. So for, for our listeners that want to connect more with you and, and continue the conversation, where's the best place for them to find you? Instagram at teaching is intellectual. We have a Facebook page as well. Teaching is intellectual. And then we also have a website teaching is intellectual.com where someone should write something sometime. 
Sure. Well, ladies, uh, it, it was a great first conversation. I'm going to say first conversation because it definitely will not be the last. So um, thank you so much for our time. Wilkie, any uh, closing thoughts? No, I just want to thank you guys. I've, I, I always go by how good the podcast is, by how many notes I take, um, because I just like to jot down like key things that you guys said, and you've given me two pages full of notes uh, that, again, for myself as an educator, I, I believe the mission of education should be that students should learn to be lifelong learners. So I, I agree with you, Mira, wholeheartedly when you said there, it doesn't stop. You know, my thing is always saying, if you're not growing, you're dead. And so growth is equated to learning. The more you learn, the more you grow. And so um, I just want to salute you guys, you ladies, for your work. Um, I definitely look forward to more partnerships in the future. Um, and like I can say, it's just, again, thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It was fun. What's good, fam? Thanks for listening to this episode of Value as Value number 255 uh, with Jen and Mira. Oh, man, like by the end of this, and you heard me say it, like I, I just couldn't take in any more information after this conversation. So you can definitely expect to have them and hear them back on the podcast really soon. But if you're not following them at Teaching is Intellectual everywhere online, um, if you want to learn more from us, go to the ledproject.com. That's got links to everything that we're doing. Um, and really, right now this time, it's early August. If there's anything we can do to support you going into this school year, I know it's going to be difficult. I know there are challenges. I know there's a lot of people with a lot of uncertainty. So if you need anything, please reach out. Find us. Send us an email. Whatever we can do to help you, we'd love to support you. But thank you for supporting Value Outside.